Today we have two readings from God's word. The first is Amos 5, 18 to 24. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? and gloom with no brightness in it. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Our second reading is Matthew 6, 15 through 14, which contains the Lord's Prayer as seen on your screen. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Well, again, I will issue a good morning to all of you. Thank you for coming out here on this dreary day. But it is a wonderful day to come and hear God's word. And as such, I'd encourage you to have Amos 5 open in front of you. If it's in your pew Bible, you can see up on the screen there, I think it's page 768, or on your device or phone. We'll be looking at a number of passages around Amos 5, but it'll be really helpful to have it open. I'm really grateful that uh, Elder Todd Davis prayed at the end of his prayer for God to change us. Because that's what I want to do quite simply this morning is I want to change your mind. And in one sense, this is a goal that we have every time we open God's word and sit under it, whether privately in the morning or together on Sunday mornings, we should expect to be changed. We should be open to be changed. And by having our mind changed, we affect our heart to change our will and our lives. Very specifically this morning, I want to think Uh, I want you to change the way you think about a simple phrase containing three short words that you may use out loud or at least think about from time to time. And from that change of this phrase, thinking about this phrase, I hope it changes the way we live. And this phrase, the three short words, are come Lord Jesus. Now, sometimes I hear people say this when they look out into the crazy and confusing world, not knowing what to make of it. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. When I see my enemies, 
personally, maybe people at work I don't like, or politically or culturally, people that I think get away with things they ought not to or are unfair, I say, oh Lord, come and hold them accountable. Sometimes I say this phrase, when I yet again at night confess to God the same sin I've committed over and over and over again. Oh Lord, come and end this struggle. Sometimes I hear a parent look into the future and what they see the, the world shaping up for their children and they say, Jesus, come and help. Maybe you're not a Christian here today, but you know intuitively that there has to be something better than what's going on in this world and you are effectively saying, come Lord Jesus. And so whether in a somewhat flippant way or very serious way, I think the sentiment that threads throughout the spectrum that I just painted is this. Things aren't as they should be, and we know, and I know, that Jesus coming, his return, will make everything better. When the day of the Lord Jesus comes, and it actually comes, it will be overwhelmingly wonderful. Oh, how we yearn for that day, don't we? It's what we express when we pray the Lord's Prayer we just read. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus. What a day that will be. But I don't want us to miss what God is saying through Amos from our scripture reading this morning. See, God wants to make sure we get right very right about what that day is. He wants to make sure we consider, in fact, what we are asking for. And this is what Amos 5 helps us. See, if we get so much about the day of the Lord Jesus correct, but we get one little detail wrong, we'll be very, very wrong about that day. We want the Lord Jesus to come just like the people in Amos' day. So look down at Amos 5, verse 18. In a very similar way, they earnestly desired the day of the Lord to come. In fact, Amos 5, 18 is the very first instance of that phrase, the day of the Lord. It's the first time it appears in the whole Bible. But certainly the idea has been bubbling around in Israel because Amos wrote to them as they knew it was a known concept to them. And a simple definition of the day of the Lord or the day is when God shows up. Not that he wasn't around before, but it's a day when God's presence is felt and experienced in a special and different way than any other time in history. It's the day when God shows up to finally and fully put down his enemies and the enemies of his people for good. Later on in the Bible, we find out that the day of the Lord is when Jesus comes, judges every single person for what they have thought and what they have done, ends all sickness, sin, and sadness, and institutes his righteous reign forever and ever. And that day, the day of the Lord, though not fully understood here in Amos' time, was the day that the Israelites of the northern kingdom were looking forward to, very much forward to. And so when Amos comes on the scene in the 10th century BC, he says to them, not so fast. 
And just a little side point here for knowing where we are in biblical history. At this point in biblical history, Israel, which was once one kingdom, has now divided up into two kingdoms. And the northern kingdom is called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called often Judah. Just so we understand that. If you were to flip back to Amos chapter 1, you see Amos starts off his book with this startling passage in chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The roaring judgment of God was pronounced by Amos, his prophet, to the people of Israel. And in the first part of the book, the people were actually quite pleased. Amos says that the Lord is indeed coming in judgment... And then he lists all of Israel's neighbors, all at one point who were opposed or attacked Israel. In other words, God indeed was coming for Israel's enemies. If you look there in chapters 1 and 2, you can almost kind of feel and hear the crowd's rancor grow in excitement as Israel's enemies listed one by one. Damascus, Gaza, Edom, Tyre, Moab all listing in the coming judgment from God. And even those pesky former family members, the Judeans, the southern kingdom, were listed as those who the great roar of the Lord was being directed at. And you can hear them chanting, yes, come Lord Jesus. The Israelites can't wait. God will come and that day of the Lord will arrive and he will be victorious. But then chapter 2 comes, and suddenly this mighty roar from Zion is directed towards the Israelites themselves. And they were shocked. They never would have guessed that the day that God shows up would be anything but wonderful and great for them. Look at chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Amos says to them there, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel... Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Back to our crowd scene. The people clamoring for the Lord, jeering at their enemies, And Amos says to them, are you sure you're prepared to meet your God? They turn one to another. The first sense of doubt, wondering what is going on. Amos, knowing that they didn't get it when he told them what was in chapters 2 and 3, that the day of the Lord is coming and it's coming for you and it will be terrible. A later prophet, Zephaniah, summarizes Amos' teaching with this in chapter 1, verse 14 of Zephaniah. The great and terrible day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. It will be the worst day ever. So coming here to chapter 5, verse 18, in our verse again, Amos reminds them 
Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Notice the word woe there. It's meant to stop the listener in his or her tracks and to think again, to pause. Back to our crowd scene. There's not a peep from the crowd. They're stunned in silence. Why, says Amos, why do you want this, you Israelites? Do you know what you're asking for the desire for the day of the Lord? And if you go on looking at verses 19 and 20, thinking that you are safe in the day of the Lord is like thinking that if you flee a lion and to be met by a bear, you're okay. Or if you run into the safety of your house and lean your hand against the wall to rest and a deadly serpent bites you, make no mistake, the day of the Lord is one that no one will escape. This day is darkness and gloom with not one ounce of light And once that day arrives, there is no hope. See, getting the details right about about this day is a really, really important thing to do. And let me just illustrate this using a this day in history point. John Adams wrote a letter to his wife, his lovely wife, Abigail, um, about this day. And he said this in his letter. The second day of July... 1776 will be the most memorable day in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows and games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from the sky from one end of the continent to the other, from this time forevermore. Of all the founders, John Adams was the only one who had such prescience that the Declaration of Independence would be this important for us here in America. He got everything right about his prediction about today, down to the use of fireworks. But he got the date wrong. See, Adams was adamant that July 2nd was the day to celebrate because it was the day that the Continental Congress decided to vote and declare their independence from Great Britain. And because history henceforth said that the 4th of July was the day, it makes Adams' view, as descriptively and prophetically correct as it was, still very, very wrong. And that's what our text here in Amos helps us see that we can get so much right about the day of the Lord Jesus, but if we miss this detail that Amos gives us, we'll get the entire day very, very wrong. Only the stakes here are much more important. The day of the Lord is when God shows up and everyone stands in front of him. It will be the most wonderful day when God makes all things right. And simultaneously, it would be the most terrifying day, a day of darkness, gloom, with no brightness in it. Friends, this is heavy. This is heavy, deep, and dark stuff. But it is the truth we must contend with. We can't wish it away, nor can we, like the Israelites, pretend that there's another reality that we live into. And so the question must arise from our thinking is, 
How do I prepare to meet my maker on that day? How do I prepare to meet God on the day of the Lord, as Amos asked? Well, Amos goes on in verses 21 through 24 to give a what not to do lesson for us. The Israelites were all in favor of the day of the Lord when God shows up to bring judgment upon their enemies because they assumed that they were on his side and he was on their side. It would be a joyful day, a happy day, a celebratory day, much like John Adams talked about. A day when they would be affirmed by God. Why did they assume this? Because they did religion really, really well. They did all the things that the Old Testament law prescribed the people of the Lord to do. They celebrate the feasts as they gather together. They give sacrifices of their animals and their crops. And they make a joyous noise of singing and music together. To put it in modern concepts and terms, they did church really well. They worshiped God with gusto. And they made a big deal of him at their weekly meetings. But look at the Lord's response to those things in verses 21 and onward. The language there can't allow us to escape the darkness of this scene. I hate your feasts, says the Lord. I will accept nothing from you, no matter how valuable they are. I accept nothing from you of your sacrifices. I want nothing to do with your wonderful singing and music. And rejecting their religious practices, God was rejecting them personally. Meeting God through religion was of no use. See, the only way to meet God positively is through righteousness. And that's where the big turn from verse 23 to 24 goes. But let justice flow down like water and righteousness be an ever-flowing stream. See, Amos is saying that religious practice is of no use if it isn't matching and forming the character of their lives. If their religious acts weren't transforming their entire lives, then it's complete and utterly false worship. Their lives were about, were about living righteously and justly with all those around them. And there was no making up for it by what they did on Sundays. No, Amos is saying that if your lives aren't like streams of constantly flowing waters and always rushing with goodness, godliness, righteousness, and justice, then you aren't worthy of meeting the Lord on that day. It will be darkness, utter darkness. And there's a real warning for us here, isn't there? For at least most of us today, we have the assumption that our singing, that our giving of our offering, and even just our attendance checks the box to say, hey, we do God really well. We're all about him. But do our lives, all of our lives, all of the time reflect God's righteousness and justice? Do you have a day when you go to bed telling God that indeed you have loved him with your whole heart, mind, and strength? Do you accumulate many days when you thank God for your pure and true and tireless love for all around you? Where you know you pursued with all your energy 
all your abilities, all your gifts, the betterment and righteousness and justice of everyone around you? How many tally marks of days when you said that righteousness and justice even made your prayer list, yet alone permeate your entire life, your entire day? My friend Ian Carmichael said this about this passage. Righteousness might occasionally flow from me, but it's at best a trickle. Rather than than an ever-flowing, never-failing stream, if God is after a never-failing stream of righteousness, what hope have I got? What hope have you got? Or to put it in biblical terms, Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. They've all turned away. We're all knotted up at this point, aren't we? In a real bind. We want the Lord to come (laughs) so desperately when we look at ourselves in the world. We want righteousness and justice to reign. But what makes us any different than those in the time of Amos? Destined for a day of terrible darkness and gloom. See, we must understand this picture Amos is painting for us, for us in order to, for us to understand the rest of the Bible and the New Testament. This is the only way we can see the glory of Jesus, like sun bursting forth from a dark, gloomy sky. When we get to the New Testament, the first book there, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tips us off that he has this in his background and his thinking when he introduces Jesus' public ministry in chapter 4, verse 16. He says, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Jesus has come to bring light to those who knew there was no hope for them. A chapter later in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And as we've been learning in Mark's gospel on Sunday mornings, Jesus came for those who knew that they were unrighteous, not for those who thought that they were. He came for those who knew that there was no hope unless the Lord himself came and did something wonderful and amazing. Jesus came to offer great light, great hope to those who live in the shadow of the gloom of the day of the Lord. Listen to how Matthew ends his gospel in chapter 27 when he describes the day when Jesus goes to the cross. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does Matthew use such language? Because he was saying that the darkness of the day of the Lord, when judgment would come, that all people deserve, is now put on Jesus instead of us. He is taking the great day of God's judgment, the day of the Lord, the darkness, the gloom, the distress, the fury, and the wrath upon God, upon sinners, and Jesus is taking it himself. 
So now that anyone who wants to be covered from that great day, that terrible day of the Lord, can be by turning to Jesus. Listen to how Peter, just a little bit later in time, when preaching the very first Christian sermon, quoting another Old Testament prophet, says in Acts chapter 2, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't meet the Lord on that day in religion. You can't meet the Lord on that day in your own righteousness. No, the only way to meet the Lord on that day is in Jesus. Peter goes on to write a letter and he says in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Are you ready for the day of the Lord? About eight months ago, I read the book of Amos for the first time in a long time and studied it. And because chapter 5, verses 18 through 24, stuck out to me so much, I went ahead and, and memorized it. I don't say this as a boast. It's really not that hard to memorize. I say this because this is a very deeply personal message to me. I wanted to stick it in my head and prayerfully into the heart and soul of who I am because it does so many things to me all at once in such a short passage. First, it reminds me of the depths of God's love for me and all his people by sending Jesus to die. I have nothing in my hand to bring to him on that day. Without the fullness of Jesus's life and death on my behalf, I too am facing the fury of God's judgment. Even in my best pursuits of pure worship and pursuing righteousness and justice in this world, they are dirty rags if I try to throw them in the merit box before the Lord on that day. When I read this passage, I stand amazed at what Jesus did for me by taking upon himself that great day of the Lord, the darkness, the gloom, the God-forsakenness, the wrath, though he deserved none of it. The only ever pure and innocent man to walk this world, in this world, was given the worst and full punishment by God no less his own father. All because he loves you. So this passage stands actually in a weird way as a great prompt for joy and thanksgiving, doesn't it? And on the flip side of the same coin, it reminds me that of all the time I spend in church and doing church things, I best be shaped and formed in my life I should try to pursue righteousness and justice. This passage reminds me that I can't love the Lord without loving my neighbor, without pursuing what's good and best for those in the world. And that leads me to my third prompt that this passage does in my mind when I say it. And this is the one that really gets to me when I say it in my head. We started off our time this morning accounting those times we utter or think that Christian trope, come Lord Jesus. 
And I hope you are really serious when you think or say that. It is what we want. It will be a wonderful and amazing day, the dawn of the day after the day of the Lord. But we can't be flippant. When I pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, or when I say, come Lord Jesus, I am asking for the full and final judgment of God to come upon every single person in this world. I am asking for the day of darkness and wrath to come. Are you ready to meet your maker? I hope that you are, trusting fully in the Lord Jesus and the assurance he gives you when he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're here today and you don't have that assurance and have that confidence, I'd encourage you to come talk with one of us, one of us afterwards or find a mature Christian friend and talk through. See, the worst thing I could do for you today is to give you false assurance that everything will be okay no matter what. Now the Bible is very clear, only those who repent of their selfishness and turn to Christ, those and those alone will be the people found in his covering. But for you Christians, what I want you to think is about your family, your friends, your neighbors, and even your enemies. I think there's a strong connection about how much you appreciate your undeserved righteous status and how willing you are to warn people about this great and terrible day. If you know you are undeserving, truly believe it, then you won't be able to help to tell others with gentleness and respect. But I worry sometimes that I subtly think that I actually kind of deserve it. You know, I was a decent prospect on God's radar, doing some good on my own, and then he came and championed me and got me the last few steps into his grace. My inaction of lovingly pursuing righteousness with my friends by telling me about Jesus showcases, I think I deserve it and they don't. A friend was once telling me about a person he worked with and in the context of the conversation, I thought it would be a good point to say, hey, you should invite her to church. And he responded with a subtle laugh and said, no, 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 she doesn't belong in church. It's easy to snicker and condescend at my friend's attitude of being self-righteous, but before you do, I wanna ask you what stops you inviting people from ch ch to church? What stops you from sharing two ways to live with someone? What stops you from asking a friend to read Amos or Mark? If you really believe in the prophet's warning about the terrible day, if you really believe that you are completely undeserving, if you really believe that Jesus paid it all and all to him I owe, is there anyone undeserving to hear about this? My hope is that you'll never say the Lord's Prayer or come Lord Jesus again without thinking about all those who are around you who will meet their maker in their own righteousness. Religion can't save them. Vain and half-hearted pursuits at godless justice and righteousness won't avert the wrath of God. Only Jesus can. I'm gonna leave with you a quote from Peter in his second letter that summarized this so well. Second Peter 3, 9 through 12, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise 
as some count as slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the Lord? Peter reminds us it is only because of the patience of the Lord that he hasn't come back to bring the day of the Lord. It's only God's loving kindness that that day hasn't happened yet. And so even an ounce of love and a drop of sober self-assessment should be enough to move you to lift up the gospel of grace to even your worst enemy, yet alone a beloved family or friend. Brothers and sisters, we have work to do from the time we're given this day and forevermore. Let's hasten the day and pray for it regularly when Jesus will be come back and let's be found busy telling sinners they can be forgiven by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this warning. Out of your love, Lord, you've given us your truth to jolt us, to startle us, and to affirm in us that you are so good that you remind us of your love. Lord, we'd ask that you will help us double down in our faith and trust in you that you and you alone are our only hope and that this grace will train us to do good works for this world in front of us. Lord, may we ask that of the many things we could do, we would never hold back from doing the great thing and that is testifying to the world of your amazing ways, that we would warn the world of your coming judgment and that we would bless the world by giving them the gospel of grace and truth. Lord, stir us this day to action and love, we pray. Amen.